0: This is the Comic Shenanigans Podcast, episode 176, in conversation with Nick Patara. This is the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 176 in conversation with Nick Patara. I'm Adam Chapman, the host of the show. Uh, today's episode is a, is a special first for the for Comic Shenanigans. After 176 episodes, we finally have a special guest from the comic book community who's the artist of the exceptionally well-received Manhattan Projects as well as Red Wing for Image Comics of which he was partnered in both cases with uh, Jonathan Hickman. Uh, Nick Batara is a fantastic artist and also one hell of a conversationalist, as you're going to find out in the next hour and a half, as uh, we finally had a chance to connect on Skype and talk about Manhattan Projects ad nauseum, his developmental process, uh, how he, all the crazy details he puts into the page. So uh, we've got a great episode lined up for you. Uh, as always, you can feel free to email us at shenanigans at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Also, you can post in our HC Realms thread that we have as well. Also, please rate and review us on iTunes, and we will read your review on the air. Also, just drop me a line knowing, letting me know what country you're from, as uh, I'm in Canada, so I won't actually see your review unless you let me know if you're from the States for example um so thank you very much for uh, tuning in to this episode and uh make sure to catch us next week episode 177 will be our comic reviews episode and episode 178 something special who knows but uh this is this episode was one that i've wanted to do for a long time and uh we finally got to to, uh have a chat with nick and uh this was these the special episode that i've been talking about in previous episodes that we were working on so i hope you enjoy this and i hope we get to do uh future conversations with nick in the future so thanks for listening
1: we finally meet after my long blowing you off like a dickhead
0: i never took it that way but i appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm adam um so comic shenanigans is my podcast
1: awesome man i see you got a lot of episodes up so you do it a couple times a week or what or uh, twice a
0: week? yeah about uh, twice a week these days
1: awesome man awesome how long have you been doing it
0: uh, two years in August.
1: Awesome, awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I can't believe it's been that long.
1: What made you? Uh, what made you get into it?
0: Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I was kind of like, you know, why don't why don't I do that? I mean, I could do that, and uh, I guess it's like anything. You you hear other people do it, and you're like, well, I think I could do that. I think I have something that I could offer, and that's how kind of how I jumped in.
1: Sweet,
0: sweet, and that's awesome, yeah and it's talking about things I love and I love comics and always have so I mean it's it was a natural fit
1: cool let me cut the fan off in case it's picking up
0: although now I feel like I'm the one being uh, interviewed here
1: nah that's all good I always (laughs) want to know like uh, I know you guys spend a lot of time putting these together usually so it's pretty I mean uh, they're all I mean generally speaking all the ones I've done have all been pretty good and all the fans have been really awesome so Uh, Everyone seems to be well-spoken that gets into it, so uh, it's pretty cool. So you a Manhattan Projects fan or no?
0: Oh, absolutely. Like a huge Manhattan Projects fan. It was uh, interesting. Um, I got into it predominantly, like I I remember when the first issue came out, I happened to be doing some freelance work for a magazine at the time, and they just kind of shot over a review copy, and they're like, do you want to give this a shot? And I was a big fan of Jonathan Hickman, so I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I'll give it a shot. And then I read it. And it blew me away, and um, it's probably my favorite comic book on the stands. Uh, It's one of the few books where I think I have triple-dipped so far, where I owned, I bought it digitally, I bought the trade paperbacks, and I buy singles. Um, Just because I want other people to read it, and I want to be able to read it wherever I go, and it's just one of my favorite comics.
1: That's awesome, man, awesome. All right, well, you can grill me on why we're late all the time and all that stuff. It'll be fun.
0: (laughs) You know what? it's worth it when it comes out. So I mean, it takes time to put together a quality book, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we'll go with that for sure.
0: <laughs> do you usually
1: do uh, like weekly reviews of what you bought, or, or what do you usually do?
0: Yeah, uh, so every week I do uh, a reviews episode because I'm looking at all the books, or a lot of the books that came out the week previous, and then I do other kind of special topics. Um, I used to have uh, a few friends of mine who would do those episodes with me. Everything else is usually solo. Um, just with schedules, it can be difficult to get other people to do the podcast with me, but, um, you know, just doing regular comic talk episodes, uh, counting down, you know, top five favorite stories of a certain franchise, that kind of stuff, spotlighting the comic book movies, those kind of things. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, and so I guess we should, we should talk about you and less about me.
1: (laughs) All right, cool, cool. Are you recording now or what?
0: Yeah, I'm starting recording now, if that's all right.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: I've actually been recording for the last few minutes, and if that's all right with you. No,
1: that's perfectly fine, man. That's
0: awesome. Uh, actually, it'll be a good intro for, uh, for I guess, your fans who end up listening to the podcast. They'll get a little bit of a history on me and the podcast before we actually talk about you.
1: Yeah, that's great, man. So, leave it all. Leave it all. I just wish I would have talked shit on more people beforehand. That's all.
0: <laughs> there's, there's still time to do that. All right. I was listening to another podcast you did, uh, I think, relatively recently, and you were Uh, Making fun in in a in a nice sort of way of Ryan Stegman.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Overall, good guy. I'm not talking shit on him anymore. He's me. I don't want to talk shit on uh, the big fish. He's getting too big for me now.
0: I guess.
1: I'm I'm using this podcast to correct everything I said about that piece of shit Ryan Stegman the
0: last time. Well, you heard her here, folks. An official apology.
1: There it is. An official apology.
0: All right. So what's your background with comics? I mean, have you always been a fan? or?
1: Yeah, um, I haven't always been a fan. I didn't really get into reading them until, uh, I say high school is when I really started to read them and get into them, and that was obviously with my stuff. It looks like Frank Quietly's stuff, who's an Eisner award-winning artist on like, All-Star Superman. He's doing Jupiter's Legacy now. Uh, back in the day, the first guy I found that I liked a lot was Frank Quietly and I liked how organic he was drawing and uh, when I read The Authority by him it, it just made me want to start drawing I saw things the kind of the way he saw them and then uh, he was very much a Mobius guy and Mobius always has this always had this cool saying that an artist interprets reality and I felt like with his stuff uh, he was taking things that he saw in people and he was putting it uh, into his work so all of his guys were like fat muscular men like this the kind of like real strong man you see on tv or at the gym and then uh, also guys like like you know just little things that showed like honesty in his work like tags hanging out or kind of little gross wrinkles on people and stuff that kind of humanized it Mm -hmm. it was always such a good for me it was like i could read that and i believed what was happening when i read the story and so for the first time i was able to absorb comics as, like, something was happening in the panels. Before that, you know, I would read something in a comic, and I don't think it ever absorbed, like, that actually happened. You know, like, it wasn't an event to me. It was just like, okay, that's just something that's happening. Mm-hmm. But with the Frank Quietly Organic mobius influence stuff, it was uh, just, it just read, it just read so well to me, and read so clearly, and I absorbed the story, and I and then the story was over the top. It was the Mark Miller uh, you know, crazy take on Warren Ellis's authority characters. And, yeah, I just loved it. And it made me want to start drawing. And I kind of felt justified. Like, I liked him. And I don't think Frank Quietly was, like, like that big at the time. Mm-hmm. And I a I had a buddy going to the Kubert school. And uh, when I went up there, uh, I always say I draw, like, like, my stuff's made of mashed potatoes. But I get that insult from one of the guys up at the school was, like, you like that guy's art? He looks like everything's made of mashed potatoes with that guy. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, lo- I love this guy's stuff. What are you guys talking about? And uh, really, the fact that he got so popular uh, is really one of the big reasons why I think I even work today because he kind of penetrated the, you know the popular big two market in a way where no one else was really aping him so much. There's a few guys that, that work in his mode now. Uh, Burnham and Aaron Cooter and a lot of guys that I like a lot. There's a lot of other influences or other guys' influence too, but at the time, there really wasn't. And so, uh, yeah, I felt like legitimized when he started winning Eisner's. I felt like, oh, that was my guy, you know? <laughs> or like, uh, I felt like the the issue of the authority, issue 14, was like the super violent... So this is how little I knew about comics. At the time, issue 14 was the Avengers versus the JLA. Oh
0: yeah,
1: Because, so that, that was basically the authority was always the JLA, but more violent. And they had a, another a team show up that was basically Avengers, and they fought to the death, and it was super cool. At the time when I read it, I didn't even know what the Avengers or JLA were. I just thought these were two superhero like teams beating the shit out of each other. But then I realized what it was. It was an allegory or some type of metaphor for those two teams. And uh, that that issue won like best issue on Wizard Magazine. And I felt like I was on to something. Like, whatever I saw in him initially, and I read well, other people got it too. And then I was just kind of off from there. I just started drawing and aping him all the time. And now I'm here, uh, a turd hack of Frank Quietly.
0: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Until you mention it, I I had not even... Like, uh, now that you mentioned Frank Quietly's name, I can obviously see his influence in your work. But I honestly would not have immediately thought that, which I think is to your credit that you've taken someone that you that you were obviously so influenced by and have made it into your own
1: yeah i I wouldn't even give myself that much credit i think it's um just no one's going to be as precise as him he's like three times more precise and more acute than i think even the really tight guys are (laughs) and so when i first started drawing i was falling short of his style and my stuff was much more mechanical because i got perspective really well and stuff so one of my first reviews I ever got was from Mike Roringo, and he was like, have you seen this guy Seth Fisher? You're drawing a lot like him. And basically I was doing like a cartoony clean line thing, and sure enough, I looked at – and I was always adding stupid stuff, like stuff from my own personality to my work. And when I read Seth Fisher's stuff, me and, I felt like me and him were on the same page. Like he was just overdrawing, going crazy, doing, I mean, doing the Jeff Darrow, doing the Mobius thing. And sometimes when he got a little more organic, it looked a little bit like Quietly. And I think I was in that same mode, but not as good as uh, Seth at the time. And uh, Or am I now? I mean, he's amazing. Mm -hmm. Or was amazing. And so, uh, yeah, I just think it's more of a, I think it's a combination of liking more people than just Quietly. And also just not going to be as good as the guy. The guy's amazing. So, unfortunately, that's it. I'm just, uh, yeah, the Kmart Frank Quietly at this point. You
0: know, that actually, that, that sounds like a great tag, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll i take it. It's making me money right now, so that'll work.
0: <laughs> now, how did you actually get into actually uh, illustrating comics then?
1: Um, so, um, I've said this before in other interviews, but I'll break it down one more time. Basically, in high school, did not draw or anything, but I could always doodle well. And I got kicked out of an honors level class. Uh, my senior year in high school, I was goofing off, and I got kicked into a lower level class. And in that class, I met a guy who's going to Cubert school. And he could draw out of his head, and it this blew my mind The guy could draw like anything I said he could draw it and it was always like like on on point he could do it it was like a magic trick and I loved it and it was I could see what he was doing and uh, it just I just got interested in it between that and reading the authority uh, he was going to the Kubert school and I was like there's a school for cartooning and then uh, I started going up with him to the Kubert school and like I didn't get to attend but I got to go up there and I would read their homework assignments I would do some of their homework assignments for fun and stuff And uh, I just kind of got into it like that. I bought a drafting table, how-to books, started getting online with digital webbing and 10-ton studios. And, uh, yeah, And from there, I would start saving up and start flying to conventions and uh, meeting editors or someone would offer me a job for like 20 bucks a page or back-end or whatever. And I would take those gigs and flake on everyone, you know. (laughs) And so I did that for a little while and eventually just keep getting better and better. And uh, my breakthrough, my first little bit of my nugget of breakthrough was in 2006. I decided to fly to Wizard World Los Angeles where you had to enter a contest to be discovered by Wildstorm. And I felt like all the stars were aligning for me because Wildstorm was the same company that put out the authority Mm -hmm. um, and and that stuff. So I was like, man, I really really felt like that was the moment for me. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to fly out there. And I flew out there and I was a finalist in that contest, which was really cool. And, uh, yeah, so didn't win that, but I got to meet all the Wildstorm guys and Jim Lee and uh, Scott Dunbear and all the different, I mean, uh, Alex Sinclair, uh, this everybody out there, Ali Garza. It was really cool. And uh, so then from there, I went back home. Uh, Practice a little more. A couple, or maybe a year later, there was the comic book idol contest on Comic Book Resources. Okay. And they basically had 200 people enter, enter that contest that anyone online can enter. They picked 10 people to compete against each other, and I was one of the 10. And we had like every round, you, you know, you get voted off. You know, you got to get enough votes to make it to the next round. I think I came in like in the middle of the pack or so. Are you still there? My computer went to sleep. Yep, I'm still here. All right, sorry about that I'll know to move the mouse around every now and then so it doesn't go dark um, so yeah I would um, it came in the middle of the pack the day I, I lost, the day I lost the contest or got voted out I uh, got a con, I got an email from Marvel and in that email um, basically they asked if I wanted to work on a Mojo World story and I said yes you know it was a dream come true it was like it was like pure euphoria when I got that email it was so crazy It's probably the happiest moment of my life other than the one time I legally ate mushrooms. That was <laughs> that, that was a great feeling too. So you could either work for ten years to get into Marvel or eat mushrooms. One of the
0: two.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Both the exact same feeling of euphoria, guys. So there's that. Um, yeah. So and then I figured out that uh, Jonathan Hickman, who I did not know at the time, had recommended me for the job called him up, thanked him, and then we hit it off, and that's kind of where my comics career began. There's big gaps in time, like years in time between gigs there, so it's not like I just took off. It was like I got a gig, thought I'd make it. Started doing tryouts for other editors and stuff at Marvel, and they would they would hire me. They'd ask me to do the tryout. I would do like three or four pages, penciled and ink, and then I just wouldn't hear back, and then I'd see the book that I test tried out for, hit the shelves like three months later, and then i like, oh, I guess I didn't get that gig.
0: <laughs> so that's
1: that was happening for a while, and then the only person uh, to stick his neck out for me was Hickman. Uh, I would, I would be, I be, ended up getting a degree in art education to, to teach middle school art, and uh, I would be passing out crayons right now if it wasn't for Hickman pulling strings for me, because the next gig I got was because of him. The next gig I got at Image was because of him, and Manhattan Projects was because of him. So I owe that guy pretty much everything as far as sticking with me when I'm probably one of the more unprofessional people, I think. Uh, I think I'm pretty fast for pencilling inking and being detailed, but I think uh, I definitely work on being a little more professional and the guys like stuck his neck out for me constantly and the biggest support of my work and I love the guy so so yeah that's that's pretty much my career how I got into it
0: Wow it's it's definitely an interesting story and I, I think um, yeah it shows that dedication can get you somewhere but also being able to impress the right people right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean the number one thing is, uh, without a doubt, the number one thing with anyone successful in anything I've seen in life. I've not lived that long, I'm thirty-two now, but um, the people that put themselves out there—it's not. It, I almost feel insulted when people say it's luck. It's not luck, man. It's like, like I've I had some people say, "Well, you got lucky." I did get lucky, but I was also the guy that was spending his money to go to Wizard World LA because he was stupid enough to think he'd be good enough to win that contest, or dumb enough to take my vacation time off to enter a contest that you had to turn in pages every four days in uh, I, I think it's luck it's like the luck and opportunity thing but I don't think I think that if I wouldn't have made it there I would have got in some way eventually maybe it wouldn't have been as fast or as lucrative or awesome as it is now or rewarding as it is now it could have been fucking miserable but uh, I don't think my mentality uh, I always say this and this is I absolutely how I feel I think you have to be kind of dumb To want to do this for a living because one, it's going to take up a lot of time. Like the joking thing is, you got to be dumb because you just got to be pig headed and keep going. But in reality, you can do a lot of other things and probably a lot of other things successfully if you're bright enough to draw and do this stuff. You could probably put that, your mental capacity to a lot of other things that will come back way more rewarding, you know? But at the end of the day, you got to be, if you're kind of stupid and just stick with it and you have a a pig-headed about it, it'll happen because you'll get good enough. I think way back in the day, Tom McFarland had, had the quote that if you're good enough, you'll make it. I think it is if you're good enough, you'll make it, but you also have the work ethic. For me, it was always the work ethic because I was never like the best A talent, I would say. There was always a guy or two that was better than me, but I was always the one that would work the hardest or try to outwork people. And I think it's just work. I think talent's an initial, put your foot in the door, yep. and yep. to pry it open is just work and being pig headed and that's pretty much the only trick that i know so far
0: now when when you were you know trying to get the kind of the foot in the door and doing the as you said the contest what were you doing on the on i guess technically not on the side but as your primary kind of job
1: i was doing a lot of things i mostly not art based you know like i waited tables i uh i did deliveries for a while in downtown houston but every time i did any job though it almost felt like i remember one time i was really down about i took an office job with, and my mom was working at the job and she's like well if you take this job it's not saying no to your the career you want to have or you hope to have it's just you're going to have all these opportunities you'll be able to afford the flights when you want to go places you'll be able to buy the light box you want or the drafting table you want um and and all that stuff and i i looked at it like that and i just really started supplementing all of all the interest I had to start flying to it World Philly or Megacon in Florida or wherever the hell I could go and uh, really, every job I had was only uh, to supplement the comic book thing in one way or the next and I would always, I would always use like buying stuff to motivate me. Even today, I'll go to the shop to like get juiced about like working on pages like buy some new Raphael Grandpa stuff or buy some new pens or like that always gets me going. I used to do that back in the day a lot. I would, go to amazon and just order a bunch of supplies or hear a podcast like this and hear what people were using and uh, that would always give me jazz to work a little harder uh for whatever reason and i think at the end of the day for most people that might only be be a hobby but for me the the luck part of it is that it did turn into a, a career of sorts for me at this point so so yeah I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of rambled a lot.
0: So. No, no, that was really interesting. No, definitely. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know that everything everything goes into supporting what you really want to do. So even though there's other things you have to do, you're able to keep the focus on what you want to be doing until that gets to be actually what you're doing as a career, as you said. So I mean, it's a really interesting story for sure. Yeah,
1: and you know, to tell you the truth, there's days where I long to be in an office. I mean, I know it, it sounds awful, but. Uh, but it' not sound awful it's all I mean I used to love working in an office because you, you when you're done at four or five o'clock you get to go to a happy hour and relax and you don't still have pages due or stuff due right away and you had interaction throughout the day And really at, at an office job I'll be honest they didn't have to work that hard you know you might the the movie office space is hundred percent true you might work for an hour a day you know you're just kind of kind of lackadaisical in and, and comics if you miss a day the page isn't drawing. you still you still have to draw that page so you're taking it home at night you know right now i work in the same room that i sleep in you know so it's like it's never not it's pretty much a lifestyle at this point and i don't really have a a good separation it's probably good for me because it helped it does help me hit my deadlines that it is all one thing but uh some days i long for that separation uh uh that i had when i was on regular jobs and uh the regular job thing uh, once i got I never, yeah, I, I didn't look at it as a bad thing, you know. I just looked at it as, oh, this is just going to help me uh, to to get what I to get what I want or where I want eventually. And also, you know, other than the day jobs, I was also going to school, and I, I'd always planned on getting the the art education degree uh, so I could teach. Because when I was in middle school, one of the big things that got me interested in like the magic of drawing is we had a children's book illustrator come in, and it was about the sixth grade or so, and I, I was just blown away instantly that that guy could draw out of his head too. When I was in middle school, I was like, that is, there was a magic to that. And I figured if I was going to teach kids and I was going to be into cartooning, that I would have that hook that would like kind of get me in. And since then, you know, I got my degree and all that stuff. I haven't got to teach, but I've gone to schools and, and like done little seminars and stuff for fun. And it, 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 that initial, I don't know if that initial hook works all year. I'm sure the little bastards will turn a nightmare after a week. But for the one hour I get to come in and impress the, the, uh, well, the kids it's its it really is an awesome like hook and an awesome experience i'll usually uh, like last year i bought it, all the kids like the kinds of pens i use and paper and blue line pencils and uh i bought them uh i brought them a bunch of g-min books from image uh by chris girusso mm. and uh passed them all out and they all loved it i got to show them kind of basic basic drawing stuff that helped them like do draw out their head and They liked it. I don't think it would, like I said, I don't think it would work all year long with kids, but it works for an hour. So, so yeah, that, I mean, so I was doing that too. So I wasn't just being stagnant. I think when I had office jobs, I would go, you know, people always want tattoos or go paint murals and stuff like that. And you get suckered into that kind of stuff, but nothing, nothing official, I would say. Uh, Really my first published stuff was the Marvel stuff that, that Jonathan like looked, you know, watched out for me for. So, so yeah.
0: What do you think it is about your style that works well with his sensibilities?
1: I think that style in general, I think it's what you see when you see Grant Morrison work with Chris Burnham or work with Frank Wiley. I think those guys are super heady, like Morrison and Hickman. I think they got big ideas, and they, don't, they do not talk down to readers usually with them. Uh, so you're either going to keep up with them. Uh, and I think if you have a style that doesn't humanize things, um it becomes their stuff can read almost dry. So I think when Frank Quietly illustrates Grant Morrison, I think when Burnham illustrates Morrison, you're getting this awesome visuals visual story with organic characters, great expressions, stuff that's fully interpreted through the artist's head. It's not sketch up drawings, it's not photorealistic, it's all filtered. Like Mobius has this great quote: An artist interprets reality, and all of my favorite artists, they definitely take what they what what they get from the world and spit it back out on the page, and I think guys like that Raphael Grandpa, just organic guys, Seth Fisher, they do that in spades, and that their story is a, I mean their art is a complete vehicle for the story, and so with my stuff, hopefully I'm getting a little bit of that in there, so you're getting the fun, quirky, silly stuff with the humor I add in sometimes, but. Uh, as a whole you're still getting the big Hickman stuff and the cool ideas and so it, it grounds it in a sense and I think that's why I think, and I also think there's two types of readers, there's the readers that have read everything that love Hickman and love Morrison and there's readers like me that haven't read a whole lot and like to read comics while they're taking a shit, you know, that they don't really want to think too hard, just sit on the toilet and read mm-hmm. I think, like, Kirkman's one of my favorites and you can just read him and he, you can tell the guys learn writing by reading comics, it's all panel to panel transition, and it's like oh reaction this act, and it's you're being carried along on the very base basic sequential storytelling element of comics, and so with with my stuff, I think my stuff reads relatively clear, and so I think it's just a good vehicle and it helps ground stuff, and I think the same thing when those European style dudes work with heady guys, you're getting the best of, best of both, both worlds. If you got guys that like the panel-to-panel stuff, I'm obsessed with that, so I try to bring that to the table. And if you got the smart readers that have read all that shit, been there, done that for 50 years or 20 years, don't need to be talked down to anymore. They're getting the Hickman stuff, even if they got to deal with my mashed potato art with it. You know? So, and it's like, uh, I think it's good. I think it's a, a great way to work. And I think, you know, for me, you know, my favorite guys are working, working that way, so so uh yeah i like i mean i, just, I think that's what it is uh, but i'm not i'm no scholar about it that's for sure that's what i'm trying to convince myself i'm bringing something to the table other than dick jokes so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now with uh with jonathan i mean does he go full script or has it become more looser the more you guys work together or how does he kind of approach that scripting with you
1: it's pretty loose structurally speaking it's tight structurally like we plan a lot of stuff out up to issue 20 we've planned out for since the beginning you know like like spoiler alert in Manhattan Project's issue 20 you know earmuffs but Einstein comes back and we knew when that was going to happen like he knew he knows like the plot points of where things will happen I think Hickman's really great at plotting stuff out in that regard and then the little things the corks I would say early on and I honestly think some of the best read read issues are the ones where they're a little tighter plotted by him uh, or uh, tighter panels I would say and then I get to play with it but but eventually I, I started adding so much weird stuff and he got busy and we started trusting each other to where um, we work pretty much Marvel style now okay. with with some tight direction here and there uh, mainly I'd say a lot of the directions to me in at this point but I do think like if I read the issues like, uh, like issues 11 and 12 or if you're a Manhattan Projects fan that's like the Harry and Fermi issues um issues one, two, and three, those were like some of the tightest. And when I go back and read them, um, I guess it's because there's less of me interjecting and fucking them up that I appreciate them a little more. I don't know. I don't know which one reads better overall. Uh, but a lot of the quirky stuff, obviously I add, uh, overall the fans seem to like them all in general, but, uh, we've had a mix of tight and loose and early, early on on, like red wing. My first thing I did with him, uh, John would even do layouts and help me, um, he didn't want me to overdraw so much there was a there's an element to clean line style where guys will do a lot of detail then be clean and it works out really well and early on I was just overdrawing everything trying to do the Jeff Darrow thing where I'm just trying to prove I can draw something so I just draw everything and I think eventually you're just not going to hit a deadline like that uh, and it doesn't look as good you don't cherish the detail stuff without the juxtaposition of the, the clean line stuff so John would help me with layouts a lot and his layouts are always cooler and mine are, mine are kind of dumb and will talk down to the reader like ABC. And his stuff was just like super cool. And if anyone read The Red Wing, there's a dividing pilot that like when he gets shot down, he time travels. And when he gets shot down, uh, he disintegrates as fast as he's time traveling. And I remember when I first did that page, it was like nine panels of him slowly falling apart and his teeth falling out and all the stuff that I thought was important to, to show clearly what was happening. And John sent me back a rough, and it was just a sliced-up pilot falling into dust. And I swear to God, everyone at every show I go to comes up and talks about how awesome that page is. And it's all because of John, not because of me. So uh, he he would help me early on with stuff like that. So our our creative relationship has been anywhere from him being an art director with me to where it's been like, you know, I guess Jack Kirby, Stan Lee – you know, we just need something for these five pages, and it's uh, it's really all over the map and very organic and almost reflective of our relationship at this point, uh, more so than anything. It has to do with trust, and some of it's not trusting, and everything else. So, so it's hard to it's hard to put into words.
0: Um. Now, speaking of Manhattan Projects, I just happened to be looking at issue one, and I was just noticing, like, I was just looking at the uh, panel composition. Kind of, you're switching from. Having the pages that you know have more like kind of concise panels, and then doing the kind of the larger panels and the kind of the odd—I uh, like that it's kind of um, not typical comic books, like the typical kind of panel structure of, of more classic books. I like to kind of switch it up more.
1: Yeah, with pe- with page layout, I almost—I I, I never. My thing is, I never want to break borders. I, I want to keep everything in the box, everything clean. It's almost too basic at times, but I think. Um, I I want to be so clear that I don't even want to add the element of what's it going to be like to break this panel border. And then how was that read when it goes into that? Like, I just want the drawings to be right. I think at this stage in my career, uh, sometimes I'll change stuff up the times when it is, I would say a little stranger. It's probably when John has suggested, uh, how, how things, how he might see things, uh, when, when he reads it. But when it's up to me, it's it's really almost spoon fed. I think a lot of the charm comes for the quirky stuff happening inside the panels, and not like breaking panel borders. I never speaking to artists that like I didn't like when I first started reading was when like you no know, someone's long torso was the length of the page, and there'd be like four panels next to them, Like I don't even know how to read that, you know. And I don't even it's not taking me along the sequential movement of the page. It's just a cool image. And anyone who's seen my art, it's not cool. It's weird, you know, like weird and quirky. I, I, if someone asks me to draw something cool, it's the shit that I draw on it that makes it cool. It's not like this guy looks like a badass. It just looks like a fucking dude made of mashed potatoes usually. But if you add enough swords and stuff or bullet holes, people will start thinking it's cool. But there's not like a visual striking thing. And I've never really liked, I can appreciate Travis Charest. Like that. that's a badass right there. But I can't draw like that. I mean, I can appreciate Jim Lee amazing but i can't draw like that you know i just i don't have that in me it's uh, there's no hatching there's no spot blacks there's no squinty eyes there's no perfectly ripped you know muscles and rib cages and lats it's it's a little i want to say it's a little more honest but it's probably just more of my shortcomings as an artist i just don't i don't want i don't want to draw that way and two uh, it doesn't read it, doesn't, it just doesn't when I read comics if I see a comic like that it looks awesome but it, it doesn't read that well I mean it it just kind of always depends on the artist not like I said Travis Charest is a beast and I, I'm an original art collector and I would love to own a page from him but I couldn't draw like that guy to save my life he's too good well,
0: it's, it's interesting though because uh, you say you know your characters may don't they don't necessarily look like badasses but your Einstein is one of my favorite characters in a comic book because he does look badass <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it's the, it's kind of the juxtaposition it's the, you know, he's got the pot belly, and he's got the white beard, he's got the big hair, it's the play on it, like, but if you just see him next to a Travis Charae drawing, one of is a badass, and one's a dope making fun of Einstein, and I know, I know solidly where I stand with that, you know, and that's okay with me, because I, when I read comics, that's the kind of stuff I like, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, what is it like you know, bringing life to these historical figures with you know, through your own kind of weird crazy lens?
1: Uh, I mean, I love that. I mean it's one of my favorite things. Uh, issue 23 now, we got like three new characters showing up. We got uh, we got Fidel Castro coming. We got um, Lyndon B. Johnson. He's from Texas. And just thinking about their mannerisms, how they move, how their hats fit on their head, all, all the I love drawing caricatures. I'm not the best at them, but I like like simplifying people's faces into like shapes or distances between cheekbones and uh, you know sideburns. Everyone has these weird things that when something's a little off, that kind of defines your face. All the imperfections defines the unique, uniqueness of you. It's why when guys are got perfect proportions, they're so hard to cartoon. Uh, and I'm very good at drawing people ugly. I think so playing with all that stuff artistically is a blast and then playing with their mannerisms and then like working Marvel style I'm getting to like Hickman said in the script Lyndon B. Johnson's gonna put on his hat deliver this badass line like how he's gonna grab the top of that hat and pop it on his head before he looks over his shoulder and deliver the line like all the nuances of, of that is super fun like how, how he's gonna look uh, you know how do I show he's from Texas I'm from Texas so like I'm going to try to add cool thing, maybe like a Texas Bolo or maybe when he puts his hat on, maybe his coat opens up a little bit. And you can see he's got a six shooter like in his like in his belt or something like all of that stuff is infinitely interesting. I Me mean, bringing them to life or like Westmoreland was a guy where uh, I just added a general in because Hickman said a general and we were both living in South Carolina at the time. So I was trying to look up guys from South Carolina in the era and it was Westmoreland and I just completely made him ramboed out and kind of crazy. And, uh, and Hickman kind of ran with it now he's kind of a, a cool character in the book and I think when I first got it I don't think it said Westmoreland it just said a general and so like stuff like that and fleshing it out and seeing it become part of the book and a cool part of the book I'm really proud of that and um, animating all that stuff is is awesome it's like why it's why you want to start drawing to begin with so that stuff is uh, really cool to me
0: Who would you say is your favorite character to illustrate in Manhattan Projects?
1: Favorite? Um was truman uh truman was actually like i said the first three issues were pretty tight and hickman knows that i would start playing around and goofing off and uh with the truman stuff was the first like little hints of marvel style he'd be like just go crazy or break your hand and uh he was a freemason and uh i think john like i i I looked up in real life harry truman was a freemason and he actually there's pictures of him in his uniform It's a very docile uniform, and I first drew him like that, and John's like, no, give him a big hat, and did a little doodle of a big Galactus hat. So once he said I could go crazy with him, I just went nuts. And there's, I think in issue seven, there was like an orgy scene where we got like Twinkie the kid and a guy with a toilet seat on his head and like crazy stuff happening in the Truman orgy scene. And uh, when he's doing his Masonic Truman stuff, uh, that was all like a great example of, us working together and making something really cool. So I, I loved him a lot. And he was kind of smarmy too and, and that. And I, I like the mannerisms. I like how wiry he was as well. And I love that hat. I actually got that hat made. It cost me 500 bucks, but I got that hat made, like a big replica of that Truman hat from Manhattan Projects. So I love that one, but spoiler alert, earmuffs, uh, he got eaten. So right now I'm liking, I mean, I like them all, to tell you the truth. They're all kind of different and fun in their own ways. So, so yeah.
0: I love that you have a Truman hat now.
1: Yeah, I'll send you a picture of it. It's uh, it's pretty amazing.
0: Because I'm, awesome. I'm just looking at that shot you mentioned from uh, issue seven, and yeah, like that, that hat is so awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy.
0: No, it's I don't, I, I don't think I'd ever actually realized all the detail that you put in that orgy scene. Because until you mentioned it, like the guy with the toilet seat in his head, I don't think I'd ever caught onto that before.
1: Yeah, it's my favorite part of that scene. So there's a bunch of stuff happening, and uh, the line is great because uh, Hickman had the dialogue down for that scene, which he doesn't always. But for that, it was like, you know, some, something about interrupting the orgy, and I'm like, oh man, interrupting an orgy, all right. And then I think the the line from Hickman was just like, just don't draw any dicks, and I'm like, all right, no dicks, <laughs> but I'm going to draw everything else. And so I got people in there like fucking sheep and. The best part for me is everyone's doing crazy stuff, but there's a guy sitting there with just a toilet seat on his head, he's just holding, like, one of the girl's hands. He's not, like, fucking around with anything. You can tell he's working through some stuff, but he has the toilet seat on his head, which I love. And then in the same scene, if you look around that panel, you could find the toilet seat really tiny, and there's, there's you can find the toilet, but there's no seat on the toilet, because the dude's wearing it on the couch somewhere. So, like, stuff like... And that's the thing, like, when people read comics, like like Jeff Darrow's stuff, you can't really appreciate how long that shit took. I mean, that was a three point perspective and drawing all these little baby figures and figuring out all the gags and making them cohesive, looking up what Twinkie the kid looks like, looking up what, you know, I think even the pizza box says Jordy Belair pizza after our, our colorist. So all that time I spent it in, and literally there might be two bits of dialogue. I think Hickman's name's written in blood across the desk too. Like these little gags that you add in when you're all alone by yourself. That most people miss out on it. When I get lazy now, I just think, "Well, no one will read it anyways." But then at the same time, when I go read a when I read Frank Quietly stuff, and I see that like if you a a great image to look at is like the Star Wars illustration he did, and he's got clearly it's the aftermath of a bunch of uh, Jedi coming in and cutting up robots and bad guys at a cantina type scene. You can see where the blades of of their lightsabers cut into the countertop and you can see that piece and how it fits and it's sitting on the fucking ground by the robots and every robot that gets caught into it's not random cogs you can see how he's thinking about how they fit together and for me and I know for most people well for most people they'll look at that and oh it's just kind of aftermath of a scene but for me I just see artistic perfection I see he cut that fucking countertop out and he had it fall down. And it, you can see how it fits in. You can see that robot's cog over here. You can see where he sliced there. And it's just, it's masterful to me. But I don't think most people appreciate it. So for me, when I get lazy, I just tell myself, i got to hit the deadline. I can't do this. But when I can go crazy, uh, I try to. Uh, but less and less these days because I always, I'm always slightly behind, which I'm working on, guys. I'm working on. It. So,
0: so, yeah. I- as a reader, I almost have to apologize because I don't know if I realized how many gags are in this one panel, and it is ridiculously awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, but it's, it's stuff like that because also if you look at that panel, there's nothing about it artistically that was smart that I did because really when you do take the time to do a shot like that, even Hickman will tell me this all the time, do a big foreground thing that will attract someone right away, a midground, a background, that was all just kind of pulled away far away and so for the time you put in nothing looks cool none of those figures look cool the shit that's happening is kind of silly and fun maybe all the detail looks cool to the layman but really you'd have to pay attention to all the gags and the where's Waldo-ness of it to enjoy it but none of it is cool versus if Jim Lee would have drawn a cool face right there everyone would have loved that face and it got more traction than all the stupid toilet seat jokes I added in there so it's a weird thing but it's also the stuff that makes me love comics like Seth Fisher did that like you could see, like someone would go into a closet and he would put the the camera at the top of the fucking light bulb just so you could see what this guy has on the top shelf of his of his closet, and it would all be some fun stuff or catty cornered stuff. So he worked out the perspective. He moved the camera a little higher, gave himself four more hours worth of work when he did it, and then he put you know not a dildo but something random up top to give you a little extra when you're reading it, and that humanizes that character when he's cutting on that light and that makes you believe that story a little more but an asshole will look at seth fisher and say oh it's cartoony and blocky well actually you don't know shit because seth because seth fisher added all that to to ground this for you to absorb your story that you're reading and someone else might have just done a close-up of a fucking half profile that took 30 minutes but he added a bunch of hatch marks on it so you think it's cool so for me i don't think that's cool i think the the upshot with the dangling Fucking light bulb right there, and all the cool stuff at top. That's what sells me on stories. That's what makes me uh, involved and believe and uh, taken on this sequential journey more so than uh, cool shots. But cool shots look cool, and if you're getting a commission, that always looks cool. But I love the I love the extra detail stuff more than anything. Even though I add it less and less, like an asshole.
0: <laughs> I think if I ever if I ever if I ever wanted, to, if there was ever any anything, any piece of art I'd ever want to own of yours, the most I think it would be that first shot when Einstein comes back from the portal. There's there something about it. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. When he walks through, and uh... so what's cool about that? If you look at, there's a splash page before that that is something I'm really proud of, and it's a detail thing too. There's a really stagnant down shot. It's a splash page right before Einstein walks out and points that gun to the portal. When he's, it's when, after he shoots Oppenheimer and he walk, when he walks through the first time yep. Uh, that shot is if you look at it there's like a Breaking Bad barrel of cash behind him there's like some little stuff that I added there's like an alien that's laying in a glass case and there's a gun next to him in the case and if you go back a few pages and look at the splash page of the down shot of that room it all matches up and that took me forever and I know no one notices it but me but it meant so much to me. And actually, the the guy who ended up buying that page, he paid a good chunk, paid like two thousand bucks for it. Uh, I wanted him to have the other page with it because I wanted to go with it because all the work, no one else can appreciate it, but all the work to make those two fuckers line up. I mean, that's a that's a pain in the ass, and I, I wanted those pieces to stay together. So the guy who bought that, I just uh, kind of gifted him the other page because to me, even though it only matters to me, those those two perspectives lined up, and it, for me, like that's the stuff I like when I comic so this guy was stupid enough to spend all that time to make sure that gun was tilted the right way on this crazy three-point down shot for no other reason than it's late at night and you got to prove to yourself that you might be able to do it even though if i look at it, it's probably slightly off and bothers me still too so
0: how much okay. of a perfectionist are you when it comes to your art
1: not not very when it comes to making it like i will use markers or whatever i need to get it down uh but retrospect like as far as Getting it the way I want it I think is important as far as the original art can be very beat up uh, when I'm working on it but uh, that doesn't bother me so much. I'm not like super clean or anything like that um, but I, the better I get the more – I think the slower I'm getting because the more I appreciate uh, the, I would say the quality and uh, the clarity of stuff a little more. Uh, even and Even if I know I can do a page fast, sometimes I'll go slow. Maybe it's a mental block thing. Uh, just to take care while I'm making it it's kind of weird at this point um, but I'm making it not very um, but in retrospect I, I appreciate it it's like I think in retrospect it becomes the art collecting side of me appreciation versus the uh, getting it done work ethic part is something I've always had in me like just get it done and stay up late and get it done and I don't look at it artistically then it's just a big pain in the ass and me drinking coffee all night so,
0: so yeah what is it like to, I mean, for, for a book like Manhattan Projects, where you've established the visual tone of it, what is it like to have another artist then come into your world and take over for an issue or two, like Ryan Brown has done with the Oppenheimer-focused issues?
1: Uh, well, so for me, I never mind. There's two things. When I was coming up in comics or reading comics, I sometimes I would hate fill ins and sometimes I'd love them. So I didn't love them on the authority because I love Frank Quietly so much, but I did love them on Ecstatics because when they would, when Ecstatics the Mike Alred Peter Milligan run, he would introduce like guys that he dug like Paul Pope and Darwin Cook and um, just a few, uh, a few different awesome guys that kind of expanded the characters for me and expanded my appreciation of art. So with Ryan Brown. Uh, I was a big fan of his stuff on God Hates Astronauts online. I'd actually, like, wrote him and bought a page from his online comic, and when I knew we were going to need a fill-in, John kind of structurally had the side story of Oppenheimer's, like, kind of planned in, where he's losing his mind, so it worked out well, and I basically twist John's arm to get on Ryan, because I loved his work so much, and I know, I could tell that he was working ad-libby with his stuff, and us working Marvel style on Manhattan Projects, I just knew in my gut that he'd be a good fit. Uh, For me, it's never bothered me seeing my characters drawn by other people. I Actually, one of my biggest things is when I go to shows, so I'll get five or six commissions at every show of Manhattan Projects characters. And I've got everyone from like Art Adams and uh, just uh, to random, like just guys just barely drawing for fun at shows. So I love seeing the characters drawn by other people. Uh, It doesn't bother me so much. I, I feel less attached, I'd say. Um, but uh, if anything I'm, I'm kind of I'm more happy for Ryan because he's awesome and now God Hates Astronauts been picked up by Image and he's going to launch an ongoing soon and uh, I feel like I don't I feel like I saw his stuff online and I, it's good it's not that I found it and it was good but it's that like uh, oh I found it it's good and I told him I'm like dude I'm going to get to get you on here and then we're going to get make something happen with God Hates Astronauts like we're going to get it going somewhere and it's kind of happened, so I'm like kind of proud of that. But even though it's all his hard work and his awesome work on the Manhattan Projects issues and his awesome work on his own book, but uh, I'm proud of it in a way. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me to see other people draw my stuff, and I own the book, so when other people draw the book, I, I make money on it too. So it's, <laughs> it, makes, it makes it much easier to swallow. <laughs> um,
0: going back for a minute on the the kind of the idea of, of kind of lo- having a looser style and kind of more Marvel method. Um, when it comes to some of the finer details, it sounds like most of them are probably coming from you. I'm looking at a specific panel um, with uh, Alfred Einstein, sorry, with Einstein having a, his chainsaw and having the e equals mc squared on the chainsaw. Did that come yeah. from you or Jonathan?
1: The e equals mc squared on the chainsaw was definitely me adding it. But this is the this is the weirdest thing, probably the weirdest. John, this is the thing that lets you know John's a little crazy too is at the end of one of the issues, whenever he had that chainsaw, I actually wrote John, because we had to figure out how we were going to kill, this is a spoiler alert, uh, Fermi gets chainsawed to death, he gets killed. Well, at the time, we had established that Harry, the irradiated skull guy, and Fermi, the hidden alien guy, were best friends, or friends in a sense, and one had betrayed the other. And so Fermi was now captured at the end of the issue, and they were best friends, and Harry is a sweet guy. But he knows his friends fucked because his friends fucked over the team. So I wanted—I called John and I wanted to have Harry go up, take off his helmet, and just hug his friend. And taking off his helmet, he's in a radiated skull. He would melt Fermi with the hug, like turn him into dust. Right, very poetic. And I was like all into it. I was like, this will be great. This is how we're going to kill him. And then John wrote back. He's like, no, kill him with the Einstein. Kills him with the chainsaw. <laughs> I'm like, it works so much better and so much more awesome. But I was like trying to overthink it too much, so that was like the one of the one things that's kind of quirky that definitely John added. And then once I, once you see Einstein with the chainsaw, it's such a powerful visual image, uh, it's super cool. But the little corks, of course, on the, the the chainsaw, I add. But that scene was very. When I tell people that, it seems like Nick would have done the chainsaw and John would have done the other thing, but I was definitely fighting for the reverse. But it's cool because now we have a an Einstein running around with a badass chainsaw cutting things up. So it's
0: pretty awesome. I guess why that connects with people and why that image works is that everyone thinks of Einstein as being such a, you know, this man of science, not a physical kind of brutality. So seeing him, you know, as you said, with the wife beater, with the chainsaw, with guns or doing any of this more physical kind of action movie um, things, seems that's why it must resonate with people because it's such a juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even early on, there's a uh, Einstein uses a machine gun like Rambo, and I, I totally added that in. He's dressed like John McClane, and he's shooting <laughs> Rambo's freaking M16 or whatever caliber gun he has. Uh, and I, that was just something where, you know, hey, they're getting attacked by robots. And I was like, all right, I'm going to add that in, you know? Uh, and so stuff like that is definitely, I added, and it, it is the same. It's that quirky charm of uh, seeing the old pudgy guy. You know, Einstein, you know, before, you know, the craziest poster ever is Einstein sticking his tongue out because that's not very smart guy doing, you know, that doesn't look like that. Now we've taken that to the extreme. Now he's John McClane and chopping people up. He's Ash and he's like uh, every other cool thing mixed into one. So it's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, the character's a lot of fun. And now we have two of them, which is really awesome.
0: Yeah, no, was the the new visual redesign of the Albrecht Einstein character... What was behind that? Was that more you or Jonathan?
1: Uh, I would say a little bit of both. John was obsessed with the acts. Like he wanted, even when we met you know, a couple of years ago, he he said, we're going to have this issue called Einstein the Barbarian. And he was like, I, sometimes when we were writing notes, you make noises. So like Einstein the Barbarian, brrr, or some, some noise he said with it or whatever. And I remember like he was really excited about it. He jotted it down. I'm like, well, that's not going to stick. And sure enough, by the time... Einstein came back, he still had that as the title, you know, from year a year or two ago, and uh, he was like, you know, I think I had a sword originally, and he's like, no, I'll make it a big axe, and the redesign was just to show different stuff, I mean, he's got so much shit on him, it's all stuff from different, at least in my head, it's all stuff he picked up in different dimensions, like different sword, or different gadget, or different this, so his redesign, I designed him, but the axe and the barbarian part was definitely John, and, uh, the extra added stuff throwing knives and katana sword and uh you know weird things on his hip and stuff or the little eye gadget that's just me trying to flesh out that he's been around and he's learned some type of weaponry or martial arts or something in other dimensions basically to show that he's had some wear and tear hopping around other dimensions so
0: i do like that issue 20 actually has the axe on the cover too
1: i love that cover man it's it's crazy um you know Hickman is a big writer now obviously he's one of the biggest but and I've told him this and I've called him uh, a few times his design sense is taking over the industry more so like artistically you could argue that he's been the biggest artistic influence in the last 10 years or at least the last five uh everyone's doing design covers now uh everything designy. I mean I've seen some that look almost exactly like Manhattan Projects covers uh and it's cool because it's so simple it's so clean and some of my favorite ones that he does um are the ones where it's just an axe or issue 21 is just the dog or uh, issue 12 is just an alien like shape of a head. And I love those. Or issue 6 is uh, just the uh, hammer and sickle uh, from uh, from Russia from and then that issue has the Russians in it. And it's such a clear visual image and it is something that leads into what's happening in the story and he's pared it down and that's him i don't know if people know hickman's background but he came from the graphic design field and he's also an artist so uh so yeah that's just him being him and uh really if you see design covers now i some of them i I call him like did you design that one and he'll like no i didn't design that and i was like man you're pretty influential he's like yeah yeah he he doesn't care but uh for me i think the guy's having almost a bigger impact design wise than he is uh I mean, writing-wise, obviously, too, but design-wise, I think it's underappreciated.
0: It's interesting, because I I do love the covers. I think they're very... Uh, there's some, as you said, they're very simple but very effective as well. You kind of know what you're looking for. like They just stand out from the crowd because it seems like a lot of covers are almost too busy or they're trying to do too much. And these are more simple, stark images or colors in most, in a lot of the cases. And it really works. But my, my wife, who doesn't really read a lot of comics, she sees the covers and she's just like, no, it's too boring. And I'm like, no, but there's so much here. She's like, it looks like they wanted to save money and have more money for the beer budget. And I'm like, no, no. Like, there's a lot going on here.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. no, no. I mean, uh, the, the, there's an element to that, too. So, But the thing is this. It's like a, it's like the Hickman or the Grant Morrison reader, right? So the Grant Morrison reader has already read everything. So they need the – I would say they love the headier stuff, the stuff that's a little more challenging. Um, so the guy that's read everything has already seen every cover, seen every guy screaming, seen every foreground, seen every Jeff Darrow hole in the head, see something through the hole. Uh, what is the next thing? and a clean, nice packaging uh, with a great iconic visual symbol on it uh, is John's thing, and it separates us from everything else uh, on the stands, and so like a guy who just wants to see Superman flying on a cover is maybe let down, but uh, you know, a reader that I'm not going to say acquired taste, but a reader that uh, can appreciate what a comic cover is supposed to do Uh, As far as give you something that lets you know something about the interior stuff, even if it's – even if his stuff's a little more aloof because it is just a symbol, it's still alluding to what is happening in there. And then it's done smart and clean and a nice design and tastefully. Like if you start looking at it in those aspects and also you want your cover not to be like everyone else's cover, you can start checking off all those things and realize what he's doing is really smart, and the other thing is it is fast uh, for me. I don't have to stop and do a cover. I can do two more pages of Manhattan Project instead of the cover, and for me, financially, now my splash pages are worth a lot more because there is isn't no original art to the cover, so works out for me, too.
0: <laughs> it's interesting. It's- Three of my favorite covers, well, not my favorite covers, but the covers I really like just because when they were coming out, you didn't realize the significance as much, but uh, I guess the covers to 10, 15, and 19 as you see uh, I guess it's supposed to represent Oppenheimer, and you see the blue taking over.
1: Absolutely. I mean, how how, how awesome is that? And it's another one of the things that people, you're not going to appreciate. It. You're going to see a bunch of circles on there. But if you look at it as a whole and holistically, or even a lot of them holistically, they're pretty, they're clever, and they're smart, and they're, they might not be Travis Charest, you know, they might not be a painted out of cover but they're doing something smart and clever and they're giving you information. Uh, You just got to take the time to put it together if you care to. And at at, at its base, it doesn't look like, or it used to not look like anything else, but I think he's affected other books now, so there is more designy covers on the shelf now. But at the time, it just wasn't, you know? And so, uh, I mean, for what what a comic book cover is supposed to be, uh, he's hitting a home run with it. Uh, But, you know, as people who, read comics and only want to see an awesome illustration of a down shot of an Adam Hughes bust, then, you know, you're obviously going to be let down. But uh, I don't think that's, you know, obviously, I don't draw hot women, so who cares, you know?
0: Actually, I guess there aren't really any real women in Menard Projects out there.
1: Nope, <laughs> not at all. I've talked to John about it, too. Um, there, has, there hasn't been any women, and I was like, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think we're going to... I mean, I'm sure when a, women, a woman needs to come in, I mean, there's been a, a woman or two pop-up in background scenes and stuff, but we haven't really had any yet. Uh, but I don't think it's something John's going to force for the sake of it either. It's like, we're doing it. One, I don't draw pretty women, so uh, it's not like a, a great gift of mine to draw women at all. <laughs> and then on top of that, I don't think, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, like, we don't have any women. He's like, well, there's no women in what I'm researching right now. So it's like, He's not going to force it to pander. He's going to write the story he wants and I get to draw the story I want. So at this point in time, we don't. Uh, but I'm sure we're going to kick in some badass women soon. Uh, maybe. Maybe not.
0: I Actually, I, I guess you're right. Like, I'm just kind of looking through, and I can only think of one woman in the series, and that was the one that, uh, I guess, uh, Feynman was with.
1: Yep, yep. So yeah, the one woman in Manhattan Projects was the one that Weinman has a one-night stand with. And if you look at that illustration, she has three shoes. She's putting on a shoe. Uh, she has a shoe on her foot, and there's a shoe under the, the <laughs> there's a shoe under the chair, too.
0: Yeah, so, you're right.
1: <laughs> they got a horrible mishap artistically on my part there.
0: <laughs> you know, I think I can no-prize my way out of that, that one of them was actually a slipper, and the other slipper is underneath the bed. Yeah, there you go. I like that.
1: I like that. I think Jordy tried to save it. Uh, if you're looking at the single issue, it was done by Chris Peters, but the trade paperback was done by Jordy and Jordy uh, colored.
0: Hello. Oh, we may have lost Nick. Yeah, we're back. I don't know how we lost you there.
1: I don't know. I didn't. I just said call dropped on my end. I didn't. I didn't hang up. I promise.
0: <laughs> you were tired of this. You're like, forget this.
1: It was like a John Hickman. He's like, don't bring up that we don't have women in our comic. Cut it off.
0: <laughs> I want to believe that he has that much power that he can just stop your stop the call.
1: <laughs> he probably could. He'd stop me from interacting online altogether if he so if he chose. It was up to him. He wouldn't have me interact. I'm pretty sure I embarrassed him nonstop.
0: <laughs> well, I guess you're probably just uh, chained to that to that desk, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I cleaned up my studio on the last two days. I got it all nice and neat, so I'm ready to be a productive man professional for once in my life i'm excited about it
0: now now do you do a lot of shows during this kind of summer convention season
1: you know this year i am uh i I think it's a little much i think i've maybe doing like six and i i I think month to month is too much maybe like a two-month gap but the problem is that all the everything happens in the summer so it's just like adding up uh after like three months i begin to think i just suck and have no fans um and then like after one month it's like man i just got back and now i got to travel to another one and you're barely making the next deadline to go to the next i think month to month is too far so i probably won't do anything this tight again maybe just three or four shows a year max Um, but i love doing them i'm very social and i love hearing from fans i'm always blown away like if i go there and there's like a little line built up i'm like wow that's that's awesome you know so uh, and then getting to talk and hearing about what they like and what what they took from the comic is always interesting. Sometimes people add in like their own experiences and and project into the stuff and they pull their own stuff out. I think that's a big part of really like music too. I'd say like a lot of times I'm projecting what I feel into a song that maybe the songwriter didn't have and to hear what they like about something or what makes them laugh and knowing that I was on the exact same page and what I wanted was delivered or something completely random happened is always cool. And seeing the different types of fans and, Ages and uh, art collectors and all that is, is freaking incredible. So I love doing shows, but uh, probably not as much in the coming years, maybe just a few a year. Which,
0: now, show, which shows are you going to be able to make it out to this year?
1: I've already done like four, and then uh, I've done Emerald City, um, did Chicago, I did uh, Houston, I uh, think a free comedy to Laredo. I'm going to do, I still have New York, Boston. And uh, San Diego Comic Con Are the ones that I have to do And then there's Austin Con And I live in Austin There's two in Austin that I'm going to do They're local so they're not as taxing And I can still work uh, when I do those But it's still like this year Like I said there's like seven or eight There's just a lot But I'm really excited about San Diego And New York I've never been So New York should be uh, pretty fun
0: You're not going to make it out to Toronto?
1: No you know I've never been Uh, A lot of places will yeah they just haven't asked me I'm getting to the point where some some people will put me up now some people will fly me out sometimes no sometimes I'll just comp a table so it just kind of depends on the size of the show and if I can do it but uh, I mean I would totally if they wanted me to have me out I would go It'd have me next year though otherwise Hickman would kill me if he sees me go to any more of these shows I gotta like hide half the time I feel like I can't tweet that I'm going to shows because he'll kill me
0: <laughs> Um. now I this I feel like you've kind of answered this question or at least given glimpse into it but i mean generally what is your kind of rate of production because obviously there are some panels that you obviously spend a lot of time on and then there's some when the deadline starts to become more of a, of an issue so where would you say is kind of your happy medium in terms of production
1: man i would love to pencil and ink i could comfortably easily pencil and ink a book every six weeks that would be ideal but that's too slow so i could do it in a month uh as far as per page just depends on the page if you said right now hickman said right now we need two pages Uh, i need it by 6 a.m i could do it i could do it in a second i could sit down and work it out and get it done um if you told me i had six months i could do an awesome job on four pages too you know just it just depends on the time the the pressure uh, how i feel artistically too like if i'm like everything's grooving everything's flowing usually at night things flow way better for me uh I can just start rolling and and do stuff. So it's just, there's no, there's no correct answer on how long it takes. Like this Lyndon B. Johnson scene, JFK and Lyndon B. Johnson are meeting, how he's going to put the hat on. I'm researching the type of Stetson hat he wore and researching the types of wrinkles he has on his face. He's got this really interesting thing that's cuts up into his mouth, like from his, his, like crow's feet that come down. And it's just really interesting. So I'm looking at all that and I'm figuring out how that's going to work. Am I going to try to top the Truman scene with something crazy? For JFK in this scene, I don't know, and so like, how long will that take? I, I couldn't tell you, but when I start getting into it, it starts rolling, or when the pressure of the deadline starts getting closer, then things come together. You know, usually a week late, but they come together. So,
0: now, do you guys have kind of? I mean, you mentioned that um, the the kind of idea of Einstein coming back was always kind of plotted from the beginning. Is is there an actual end um, that is kind of in? like that is on the drawing board or because obviously it's an ongoing comic and you guys want to keep it going or do you have kind of an idea on how it might end
1: i think it's a it's a true ongoing like me and john have never talked about one ending i'm sure if an an awesome ending came up that was like an awesome love letter ending that you couldn't pass up we we could do it uh but i think a lot of books are launching as ongoings that might be 10 issues or something but ours isn't like that ours is an ongoing that we plan on Going, I mean, I, I told Hickman I didn't want to do this, but early, early, early on, he's like, Yeah, we could even do future stuff. I'm like, I don't want to do future stuff. I'd like, if we get up to current times, because we're already at like, we're already at the Cuban Missile Crisis, I'd say we're hitting right now with some of this stuff coming up with Fidel Castro and everything. Uh, I, I mean, if we get up to like Barack Obama or whoever's, uh, you know, elected after him, you know, after then, you know, I'm sure we can find a way to only do certain. Stories from there on. Uh, I don't really want to project f- into the future too much. Uh, I never was never a big fan of like Lost and future projections and stuff like that. I'd rather just be us playing with historical fiction. If we run out of history, we just run out of history, you know. Um, but I know that coming up, we're taking the team and we're dividing them up in their own missions, and so we have a lot to play with. We have like kind of a Star Warsy thing going on, and we have a political thing going on, and we have a. You know some kind of like underground organization stuff going on, and all the teams kind of separating, doing their thing, their own thing for a little while. So we got a lot of stuff to play with. And if you look at the trade paperbacks, they're colored to go to the full spectrum of the rainbow. So when you put them all up on your shelf, they'll make a nice, pretty rainbow. And I think we need at least you know we're gonna need like 15 trades to make it happen because he hasn't really graduated too far with color with four trades so far. So so yeah. We got, we got no plans on an end, is the long-winded answer to that.
0: Now, what is it like to say goodbye to a character like Oppenheimer? I mean, he was kind of one of the main stars of the book, and then you obviously you're showing a fearlessness in that you don't need all these characters to survive. Um, but are you going to miss illustrating him? I mean, all the different alternate versions of him that you would illustrate were a lot of fun to, to look at. Yeah,
1: I mean, with him more that's more ryan i'm glad more ryan brown drew those issues because i wouldn't want to draw him that much ryan brown drew like all the crazy versions and all that so i mean that's more on him i did like oppenheimer he was cool uh uh i liked how wiry he was illustrating him was fun but we there's so much more with the characters that sometimes i feel like we could stop on one thing and just stretch it out even more and you know storytelling wise i always want to add panels And I feel like sometimes there's years happening between issues, and I'm like, man, there's so much more we could do. So I don't feel like we left much on the table. You had an awesome... You had him, basically, his structure was the backbone of the first 20 issues, like him as a character. Uh, And then you had three issues of nothing but him in his head, and you had it round out nice. And as soon as he died, you got an extra Einstein added to the mix. I think that was a great pacing on Hickman's part where nobody... I know I would drop the book now that Einstein showed up with an axe, even if the main character died, because there's just something new at it. And I'd rather do that than it stagnate. I mean, do we need six issues of him lost in his head? I I don't think so. You know, so, uh, I mean, I'll miss more Truman more than anything. But now we got JFK and maybe, like I said, on this next scene, I can figure something that can top that or try to do something cool. Maybe have a dead hooker in the White House or something like that. Like when Lyndon B. Johnson comes in. I don't know. (laughs) something fun like that I mean there's always something new to illustrate and honestly uh, yeah I mean if it's written like I love the scene when Truman died like he's like uh, Oppenheimer leans in and then uh, I think he says something along the lines of like uh, you know you're gonna kill me and then Oppenheimer leans in and says no I'm gonna eat you and then you pull back and you see an outside shot of the White House and just hear ah like that's a great ending like We could have dragged it out and had him do more crazy shit, more crazy orgies, but that was a nice little note to end him on. And that was a great, like, page. I love that page. So, uh, I mean, if it's the right note and it's the right time, I feel like the the deaths, Fermi, Truman, and Oppenheimer have all been structured and plotted so well by John that if if it works, it works, and then go with it. You know, no no need to drag it out.
0: I have a question about issue twenty. Um, what is Pigman Vodka?
1: <laughs> oh, so Pigman is a joke. Um, for me, like, uh, I, are you there? Yep. So Pigman is like a, my joke is, or with all my Skype friends, my nickname has become Big Fat Pigman. I don't, I, I know why, but the, the story's a little too graphic, but basically that's my name, Big Fat Pigman. So, Pigman Vodka is just an ode to my nickname in the Skype group. There's also, if you'll see, Charles Paul Wilson the third is one of my buddies. He's an illustrator of the Stuff of Legend. He draws Wraith for Joe Hill right now, with Joe Hill at IDW. And uh, Wilson Whiskey 3 has always been the Evil Einstein's whiskey of choice. And that comes from him being my buddy. And actually, if you look at the First atomic bomb dropping uh, in Manhattan Projects issue three. The the mushroom cloud. There's actually a nut sack in there too that says CPW three. And I always say it's Charles's balls and the mushroom cloud. So <laughs> clever readers, go find that go find that nut sack in that mushroom cloud. <laughs> I actually got nervous and I think I called John. I'm like, dude, uh, I turned in some art and I'm probably sure you're not going to see this, but there's a there's a nut sack in that cloud. He's like, just leave it. He just said "fuck it," <laughs> so that shows the stupid shit I add for no reason in Man projects. <laughs>
0: um, n- another question about issue twenty. Sorry if I'm getting a little nitpicky, but
1: um, no, oh, no, it's cool. Only thing is, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, as long as you don't think your, I mean, your listeners will be bored by the nuances. I don't want to bore them too much, but I can get into the nitty gritty of every panel, and I like doing that. But I'm worried the generic viewer I'm boring. But you know what? Fuck the generic viewer. Pick up Manhattan Project single
0: Absolutely. <laughs> All right. All um, right.
1: Go. Issue twenty. Let's go. Hit me with
0: it. I uh, just some of the questions about. I mean, obviously you have certain. Um, uh, we see Einstein in a few different kind of locales, and it's kind of there's a, a quick what two page two pages where you have uh, two panels on each page, and we see these kind of actually there's more than that. My bad. Uh, more alternate realities were they ideas that uh, Hickman had or were they all kind of of yours
1: all stuff that I um, I, I can't remember the script it was very loose I could tell you that um, I know like that there's like a very mu- very much a he-man one that I added in uh, one was just underwater because I couldn't think of anything else one was uh, him sitting on some rocks He was actually fishing when he was sitting like and there was, like, you see like underwater and above the water but Hickman deleted out the fishing pole and he was you know, instead, the dialogue read that he was going to dive down and get a key or something. Uh, so it worked out better. Obviously, he wasn't planning on diving down if he was fishing. Uh, so some of that stuff was a little bit random. Uh, some of it, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure some of it, like the Mobius one was one I added, but I'm sure that he probably wrote sci-fi or something like that, uh, in the like maybe a sci-fi something or maybe a this something or a dune something. Uh, I, I can't recall exactly. And at that time when I illustrated those, i was on like one of the craziest crunches i'd been on artistically speaking i was like didn't sleep for three or four days of the week like i was I only I only slept like three nights that week drawing the end of that and i was really happy with the issue when i was done i was in a crazy groove and it was a deadline crunch and uh i was all like a vague memory by the time it was all done i slept for a few days after that
0: i do um i do love the one with uh it looks like an mc escher drawing
1: oh yeah that was definitely an escher thing uh perspective isn't you actually put a ruler to it it's pretty wobbly but I, like I said guys I didn't sleep so I, well, feel like, I feel like if you do an ode to Escher you should be baller with your perspective so at once I, I'm glad I did it but it, again you should be money if you're going to do it right and mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like I was but uh, people got got the gist it's and plus Jordy colored it gray for me and that kind of lends itself to the Escher illustration so so she helped out there too
0: now, how did Jordi Belair become the colorist for the book? Like, like how does that even go about? I mean, obviously you and you and Jonathan came up with the, I guess, the concept, but how do you end up picking a colorist? Because obviously the colors are a huge aspect of this book.
1: Yeah, the, it was an interesting story. We were having, we had a lot of we had a lot of trouble um, early on. Um, like originally, uh, Hickman loved um, Chris Peters, and she colored the first issue in the floppy version, and then uh, which which I like that issue, but Hickman. Uh, didn't like I don't know I don't really like it but it didn't work out so then we used the colorist Rochelle Rosenberg who colored Red Wing for us and then even then we were like two issues into our ongoing series which we plan on going for a long time and uh, it wasn't he wasn't 100% happy I wasn't 100% happy so we're like we need to make a decision like we've already got two different ones we're about to have a third and I think you know he's like let's just try to hire Dave Stewart and anyone who knows about coloring Dave Stewart's the mega god of coloring uh he's won all the eisners like he he has more eisners than most people have uh eisner nominations in a lifetime like he's a he's a beast and he's amazing and uh of course he's too busy and somehow in john reaching out uh to one of his writer friends that knew davis you know there's this girl's coloring stuff She's really good and uh name's geordie and we saw some samples and they were awesome i loved them and then we gave her one page she turned in that page, and instantly I was like, "Dude, we got to use her. She is amazing." And John's like, "You sure you want to get her trial somewhere?" I'm like, "No, do use her." And then she took off, man. She's awesome. And now, within a year, she's nominated for, or two years, she's nominated for an Eisner, and she's coloring every book on the stand. So, yeah, uh, that's how we—that's how we got with her. She went back and recolored the first two issues for the trade to make sure everything was unified. And uh, yeah, I mean, she's awesome. She's uh, really, really talented adds a lot so
0: now what I mean I, I I confess to not knowing some of the intricacies of how that's done so you pencil and ink all of your own work have you always done all the pencils and inks or is there a reason why you ink your own stuff and don't have another inker come on
1: yeah I just pencil and ink I think all of my favorite artists pencil and ink their stuff uh, I, I'm obsessed with line quality and obsessed I, I, I don't finish my under drawings all the time like some, a lot of it happens in the inks uh, so I don't really I couldn't just hand my blue line drawings off to someone and say finish this finish this scribble or finish like I, I can tell which little wiggle to use but there might be a thousand little wiggles all over the thing so uh, yeah I just do it and I think artistically speaking uh, I, I ran into a young artist recently and he was asking me you know I'm just a penciler really you, you become way more valuable if you pencil and ink because you, uh, if someone's hiring you or an editor's editing you or if you want to collaborate with a friend, he doesn't then have to get find an inker as well. And like if you're dealing with one Nick Patera who's a week late and he's turning in pages, you don't want to deal with a Nick Patera inker who might be a week late too. You're adding another element to the team uh, that you could cut out if you, if you inked yourself well and you did it like to me my inks are my art it's not like pencil. i don't see two things i see one thing um but there's also amazing amazing inkers so uh but for me i think some of the pencilers are getting so tight that they could just ink themselves sometimes uh but I, I don't know like like frank quietly i think he should just ink himself he doesn't really he goes back and he pencils like one more time really tight and then darkens it on the computer And for me i wish he would just ink it that last time but there's guys that also like there's amazing inkers that are like badass draftsmen that are doing stuff with ink that that nobody can't like mark morales is awesome i've seen him work on stegman stuff at marvel and it's amazing there's tim Townsend of the world there's you know scott i mean there's just everybody there's yeah there's there's like some awesome inker so i don't want to say don't don't use inkers or whatever but for me it was always the final thing was the was the art it wasn't like it was never a separation for me, and I think honestly that did that did help me get work. Because when I talked to John, uh, he was like, "That's one of the best things you do is that you ink yourself, and uh, it, it kind of helps you out. And you learn more about your pencils that way. You learn more about finishing stuff. I think if you if you play around with paint too, you learn a lot about form. Then uh, everything kind of informs your drawing. And uh, inking was always the final destination. It was never like can just pencil because then. To me, you're just light boxing and tightening stuff up, and you can do that with a freaking micron if you if you want to do it. So, so yeah.
0: Uh, getting back, so I keep coming back to issue twenty, but it is the most recent issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a fun issue. It actually, I think it's one of my best illustrated issues too. So I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it.
0: Uh, when um, when the okay, so now we have two Einsteins in the book. So you obviously you visually change the one that we've known basically since the beginning of the series. And now he, I almost want to say looks Hitler-esque.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was an issue I had. I told John that I wanted to slick his hair back and then give him the mustache. You can't give anyone a black mustache without him looking like Hitler. So uh, the later issues now, I just got him salt and peppered. I just dragged the ink a little bit and left some white. Um, So he's going to have a little bit more salt and pepper look to his thing. But uh, John Mm -hmm. thought it looked, I mean, it just looks like him with his hair black. But again, if you give anyone a black mustache, they're going to look like Hitler. If I drew a m- black mustache on you right now, you'd look kind of like
0: Hitler. Kind of, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's the thing. Like uh, that guy's kind of he kind of created a a mega fashion thing there that you, no one else can do. So it's him and Mario.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. No. What is it like having two versions of the same character that you're illustrating now? I mean. I don't know, obviously we haven't seen anything since issue 20 yet, so we don't know if they share a lot of scenes together, but um, what kind of nuances do you try to bring to distinguish these two characters? Because they are essentially the same person.
1: I've only done uh, another scene in issue 22. I finished, I'm working on issue 23 now, um, where they're together, and it's a cool scene. So I haven't got to do too much, um, but I'm definitely going to do demeanor. Um, I'm probably going to make the nicer... The original Einstein, a little more stoic, a little little less—I uh, don't know what the word is—but uh, a little less demonstrative, I guess. Just more casual, more laid back, more reserved. Like he's very forgiving, and the little bit of dialogue you've gotten from him so far, he didn't need to go out and get revenge on the other Einstein. Which originally I thought that's what it was going to be. It was going to be Einstein with the chainsaw versus Einstein with an axe, right? Like when those <laughs> two guys show up, I was so excited for that. And that's what everyone probably kind of wanted. But instead, we got these guys teaming up together. And at the very last page, there's a little double impact poster, which is I'm a big Sean claude Van Dam fan. So to have that uh, the, uh, double impact poster on the back uh, is cool because now to see these two guys together, and then they could always turn on each other and kill each other, right? So We'll get to see – we'll get to add something story-wise, have them team up together. And they've done one thing so far together that was pretty cool uh, in issue 22. Uh, but I, I, it was only about three or four panels, so I didn't really get to play with their body types or postures, which is something I'll totally do because obviously I love Frank Quietly. And if you can look at like his – I mean I'll, I'll fall short of this, but if you look at his All-Star Superman and you see his Lois versus – I mean his Clark versus his uh, Superman – uh, there's two different same body type but two different postures can sell anything if you do it right so hopefully I'll have the time and put the effort into the pages to do that uh, but I haven't got to yet
0: um, any any other teases you want to kind of lay down for what's coming up in Manhattan Projects
1: um, well issue 21 is pretty fun it's the Ryan Brown issue um, it's a it might be Ryan Brown's last issue so far but it's having to do with Leica it's really cool if you're like a fan and then uh, that comes with a sketch cover too. So if you go to the shop, you can get sketch covers and we can rip you off at shows. If you come up and want
0: drawings (laughs) on it.
1: Um, so there's that, which is pretty cool. Issue 22 is fun. Uh, we got some cool JFK stuff coming up. We got Cuban missile crisis coming up. Um, we got two Einsteins out and about together. They're hanging out now. Um, yeah, there's like, uh, we got a little, they're all going to do their own little side missions and do a bunch of sci fi stuff. And it's going to be a true kind of balls to the wall sci fi comic coming up, but still be grounded with some political stuff happening uh, in the regular chronological historical timeline, I'd say, too. So, outer space stuff and political stuff and pretty much anything you never wanted and did want in a comic book with Einstein in it. So, it's pretty good.
0: And any any uh, awesome Easter eggs coming up as well?
1: Oh yeah, issue twenty two. Um, two more creators die. I, I've been killing creators off in uh, Manhattan Projects, in twenty two got some golden ones, some really some really great ones. So issue twenty two will probably won't come out for another month and a week, or month and or month a week or so. But that one's got some good ones. So
0: keep an eye out. Now, um, obviously, the Manhattan Projects is your focus, but is there anything else you kind of want to do on when Manhattan Projects wraps, or if you ever have, I don't think you have time in the middle, it sounds like, but is there anything else you kind of want to approach and do at some point?
1: I mean, I'm doing covers now, uh, and I'm doing covers for Oni for a book called The Life After. Uh, It's with Josh Fialco and Gabriel Batista. Uh, those guys are really awesome uh, I'm doing the, the regular ongoing cover artist for that and I'm doing turtle covers on occasion I think I've done a 7 or 8 so far but they're usually the variants and hard to find so uh, I'm doing that for fun and there's a, there's a lot of stuff I want to do creatively uh, that I'm kicking around all the time I'm like writing a wrestling comic with the artist Sam Lofty who's drawing it and I'm paying him to draw it and i got buddies helping me write it so that's kind of a fun thing but nothing that um, nothing that is really uh, g- recent or going to come out anytime soon enough to promote at this time uh, yeah I mean yeah that's pretty much nothing worth uh, promoting right now so.
0: so obviously the message is buy lots of Manhattan projects
1: <laughs> yeah yeah we actually the, the coolest thing coming out is going to be the hardcover at the end of the year and we're going to do a hardcover it's going to have the first two trades in it and I'm going to I talked to John, and he's going to let me put a bunch of extras. So you're going to to see a lot of the preliminary stuff. You're going to have to see Truman. First Truman when he didn't have his hat, and then when he got his big crazy hat. A lot of the inside stuff, uh, sketch-wise, we're not going to do a lot of text, just probably a lot of doodles and random stuff that, uh, that that I added or that John maybe kicked back and forth. I got my old hard drive, and I, I recently moved everything over, and I'm going to go through that here in the next week and add it in. But it's already solicited. It comes out in October. Uh, And it's worth. uh, If you're a Manhattan Projects fan, you know, nice hardcover. We're going to try to do like the chew hardcovers uh, and kind of rip those guys off a little bit. Uh, So yeah, I mean, that's. I'm I'm really excited about that. Never had any of my stuff in a nice hardcover with the extra. I think the extras are always cool for me. But I'm a big hardcover nut and original art nut. So if I get to see that kind of stuff, um, it always, you know, see behind the curtain a little bit uh, is always cool. So that's coming out. I'd recommend that. I'd recommend checking out. Uh, God hates astronauts is launching as an ongoing from Ryan Brown. That's going to be awesome. And then uh, there's another guy that I like a lot named Ian Laurie, and he's illustrating a book called And Then Emily Was Gone with a bunch of buddies of mine. And uh, that's a book that I'm doing a cover for, and I've helped helped along the way, I'd say. And it's coming out through Comics Tribe, and uh, I'm proud of that book too. But again, I don't see any money from any of those, so buy the Manhattan Project's hardcover first. <laughs>
0: I I am really excited for the Manhattan Project's hardcover. As I said, that'll be the fourth uh, version of this book I'll have purchased...
1: Yeah, man, you're the you're the sucker. You're the one that we love
0: the most. <laughs> I can't help it. it's just well, a part of it's uh, part of it is that I mean, I got the original singles because it was just it was so much fun to read, and I love having it on my bookshelf so I can easily give it out to others. In fact, uh, one of my best friends and he's often on the show, um, Leon. He I just gave him all four trades about a week as, a week ago. He called me the next day. He's like, "Yeah, this book is amazing. Like, it's one of my favorite books I've ever read." I'm like, "It's really tight." So that was the reason for getting that, and then I it was on it was a digital sale one time on Comixology. I'm like, I'd love to have this on my tablet, and then the hardcover is listed. I'm like, oh man, you're just stealing my money.
1: Yeah, no, we're gonna do the whole chew thing with the singles and that. I don't know if we'll ever do a bigger one than that. I want to get the extras in this, uh, just because I love opening like a nice hardcover, a little bit oversized, and then the extras in the back. I'm not necessarily proud of all of the art. Like I know I'm better than that now on a lot of it, but I am i'm proud of what we made you know like i'm proud to have it like oh look at the 10 issues of that and nine of those were you know some of my first stuff i've ever drew and seeing the creation of it knowing how we went to marvel style and how all the characters changed and how i grew how me and john's relationship grew uh it was cool i mean it's cool you know like uh uh i'm gonna be really proud of it whenever i can get my hands on it i'm totally gonna give that not give it away I'll
0: sell it to a lot of people. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting too because I mean, a lot of people in, the, in in different lines of work they can never kind of have something to show. This is where I was in this point of my career. Whereas you actually get to have something that that, that says that for better or for worse. Because obviously, as you said, you've grown. But I mean, it, it's it's a it's a rare gift to be able to have be able to have a touchstone of where you were in your career at a certain point. Where in most people in their jobs they have no real way of doing that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. It's one of my favorite things is you get to keep a little timeline of what you were up to and see your progress versus when I was doing deliveries, I might have had like three dents on my bumper from different bad days at work, <laughs> you know, like that's what I have to show for it and not many memories beyond that. So, yeah, it's it's cool. And it's it's cool just to, I mean, like I haven't been doing this long, so to see a collection come out with your name on it uh, is awesome, man. It's like, a, you know, my, my parents don't even read the comics, but I know they're proud to see their last name on it. There's that simple there's a simplicity in that too uh i don't know it's just it's nice and it's rewarding and uh it's awesome that even like you know your podcast would have me on and be interested in talking about this stuff you know or talking about you know what einstein was doing on this panel on page 20 or issue 20 you know page 18 like it's it's rewarding it's that same kick i get when i go to shows and get to meet fans that you know care spend their time and money and Thoughts with with the work and it's really rewarding and I appreciate you having me on.
0: One question before we uh, terminate or end the podcast, uh, the interview. I like,
1: Termi- I like terminate. I terminate strong.
0: The minute I, I said it, I'm like, man, that's a little harsh.
1: No, Terminator Two is like one of my favorite movies. So <laughs> down, We can terminate some shit. Let's do it.
0: Uh, are there is there any um, uh, like licensed clothing yet from Manhattan Projects? I confess to not knowing for sure, but
1: we have an official one, uh, one shirt that says "Science Bad" on it um, that John designed. It's a, a, a designy look John one. I want to do some one-offs, but I got to run that by John because we both own it. You know, and I kind of want to print out like ten. Like I, I have a you know, if you follow me on Twitter. I feel bad for you, but if you do, I always say tight butthole all the time. Is it like, that's cool. And, uh, I want to make one instead of saying science bad, just have it say tight butthole, you know, <laughs> 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 I, I don't know. I, I feel bad. I don't want to make like 10 of them. And I you know John owns it too. So does he, does he want, does he want half of these shirts for him to sell too? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel weird about making stuff. I did make like 15 fake Lego sets at San Diego last year and uh, they sold out instantly they cost me a fortune to make but I've done like little off stuff but nothing official except for that t-shirt It's a it says Science Bad and uh, it's kind of like you know the Saga has their Lion Cat t-shirt we have that but I, I don't think it's uh, I don't see it in a lot of shops when I go to shops to tell you the truth I've got the I see it at the image booth it shows Yeah. and uh, you, I've seen people order it online and tweet it at me but I haven't run into any shops that are carrying it this time but it is it's, it's our official one the rest are the fucking the guys that are hacking us and making their I I Riley Rossmo is an artist at Image and he bought a fake uh, little little sweater for me, Manhattan Project, so it's like all off print. it? I was like, You son of a bitch, you supported them, but now I have the fake Manhattan Project sweater. It's pretty cool. Oh, <laughs> well,
0: I would I would like to buy a Truman hat.
1: Oh, Truman had to be awesome. They're 500 bucks last I checked. I don't know if the chick would even do it again. I think she spent like three weeks sewing it by hand. I feel bad for her. She's really awesome. Uh, she's on Twitter. Her handle's Popcorn Fart, and she's super awesome. Uh, she's a sweetheart. Her name's Nancy. And uh, she made me a red wing hat, like a helmet, like a beanie helmet, and then she made me that. And she's uh, cost- she, did- she went to school for theater design and costume making stuff. So she's always like making little doohickeys here and there for people. And then I wanted to start commissioning her, because uh, she's her sweetheart. She's in Texas, and she's really nice and she's working hard. So look her up, guys, and get her to make your comic book paraphernalia.
0: Well, thank uh, you for, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Nick. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, man, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry for blowing you off uh, six times. Don't curse me out before the intro, all right?
0: Uh, well, maybe a little.
1: Yeah, a little bit. You finally, you finally uh, fucking pinned me down. It only took six tries.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was really great uh, talking to you, Adam.